Hello, listeners. Before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a survey that we're running so that you can give your feedback on the show. If you could spare just a couple of minutes to help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Just click the link in the episode description or go to thisstudyshows.com. I'm Mariano Hotter. And I'm Dan George. Welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. We believe that your research matters and has to be shared. So in this show, we explore the most effective ways of communicating science to all sorts of different audiences, whether that's school kids, colleagues or your friends over dinner. This week on the podcast, we are very excited to be speaking to Serafina Nance, someone who's had loads of experience communicating science to different audiences. In recent years, Serafina has become a prominent science communicator, as well as continuing her work on her astrophysics PhD at UC Berkeley. And not only does Serafina share fascinating facts about astronomy, she's also a passionate advocate for women's health. In 2019, aged just 26, she had a preventative double mastectomy in order to lower her risk of breast cancer from the mutated BRCA2 gene. And she shared her story of the procedure in order to encourage other women to advocate for themselves. I'm really excited to talk to Serafina about, I guess, those those choices of, of mixing science and the very personal experiences that mm, she's had. Yeah, me too. But I'm also, I've got quite a specific one as well. I I saw her reaction on Twitter to the video of uh, Perseverance, uh, the rover landing on Mars. So I, I really want to um, talk to her about that as well. We've got a lot to cover. <laughs> OK, so without further ado, here's Serafina Nance. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so... Just to just to check, you're an author of an upcoming children's book. You've just had a memoir commissioned. You host an online show on YouTube about space with millions of followers. Does your PhD supervisor ever give you, you know, a bit of side eye for all the extracurricular work? Right, Sarah that's Fina, a good well, question. When's this going to get done? <laughs> yeah, no, that is a, that is a good question. I am very <laughs> overwhelmed all of the time, um, but I'm very lucky to have a PhD supervisor who knew my interest in science communication and sort of these adjacent things that have captured my interest throughout my PhD and he has been honestly incredibly supportive with me exploring those and, um, you know, devoting time and energy to them in addition to my to my research. I'm not the fastest astrophysics PhD researcher, but <laughs> I, you know, I'm lucky that I get to explore a lot of different interests and, and all of them coincide with science and with science communication. What drew you into science communication? Why is it so important to you? What is it that you want to share with the world? So I I fell in love with science communication, I think, first when I saw Carl Sagan, um, his show Cosmos. And I... Oh, great. Yeah, I... Uh, I was shocked. I was like, wow, someone can talk about astronomy to people who love astronomy and <laughs> you can just share your passion and people respond. And I, you know, I think I was in high school when I first saw Carl and I really fell in love. I was like, that is something that in my dream of dreams, I would love to do. And in college, I did an internship at an observatory where I thought I was going to be doing research, but 
I ended up doing a bunch of science communication. I basically taught little seminars and showed people around the observatory and talked about current research. And I found that the more I did it, I the more I loved doing it. And the way that people responded to my um, stories and sort of my passion for the stars made me feel like I was actually making an impact in a field that can feel very sort of separate from the world um, that we live in every day. So those were sort of my two entry points towards science communication. And then, um, you know, I started my PhD and found that with a lot of science sort of in popular press, you know, we talk about vaccines, we talk about climate change, we talk about all of these really prescient topics um, that there's a backlash against. You know, there are people who refuse to get vaccines or refuse to wear masks or refuse to believe that climate change is real. Um, And to me, the failure in that lies in science and scientists for not communicating um, sort of the important parts in a in an accessible way to people to help them understand why they should trust science. And so I saw this over and over. You know, I grew up in Texas where a lot of people um, didn't trust scientists. And um, that distrust affected how people live their lives day to day. And so I think it's not enough to just do cool research, that research doesn't mean very much unless you're able to communicate it to other people. Mm. Do you worry sometimes, though, that now you're one of the scientists and those people back home in that in that town in Texas would be looking at you going, you're one of them now. I don't trust what (laughs) you say, Serafina. Yeah, I think that's a that's a big problem. Um, You know, it's easy in science and in academia in general to isolate yourself in this sort of ivory tower that is inaccessible to everybody else who is not in the field. And I think that, to me, is a huge part of our jobs every single day is to communicate and put aside our own egos and our own things that we're really proud of in order to be able to reach people who aren't surrounded in that field or part of that tower every single day. To me, I see that as the challenge that we need to face every single day in order to um, increase sort of science literacy and not even knowledge about any particular field, but just the way to think about and analyze and process and understand information all across every every part of the spectrum, not just science. I'm a big Twitter fan. Um, you know, there's lots of bad things about it and, and some good yes. things about it. But, um, but I, I saw your reaction on Twitter to the video of Perseverance, uh, the rover uh, landing on on Mars. And I thought it was really nice because lots of people don't think that scientists have emotion. And, and you really, I think, showed your emotion to it. And it was a really emotional thing, I think. Um, but I think it was really nice. Did you get a lot of sort of good response from Yes. Wait, Dan, for those of us who, who didn't see this tweet, just describe what <laughs> I'm imagining Serafina now in like floods of tears, like sobbing into her phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> going, it's beautiful. <laughs> I yeah. want to go to Mars. <laughs> what there happened? Was, Talk me there through was, this. Sure. Um, so re- I think it was in. Um, early March or late February, we landed a rover on Mars and it was the the Perseverance rover. And what was cool about this landing 
one of many things that was cool about it is that we could watch it basically live. And that meant that the NASA control room and people from all over the world are all logged in watching the same feed of this I'm going to try not to cry right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you're watching this, you know, human made spacecraft um, or rover land on another planet. And all of the emotions from fear, exhilaration, anxiety, excitement, they all sort of coalesced as, you know, you're watching people, scientists, engineers in the control room, um, basically watch their life's work unfold in real time to the entire Mm. world. Um, And to me, there was such a profound moment of human connection and uh, awe in terms of human dreams and what we can achieve. And I very openly shared that on Twitter um, where, you know, there was a moment where I was I was I was in tears. I was overcome watching this watching this happen. And then I sort of sat alone in a room by myself later and watched it again and and (laughs) let all the emotions come through. But I think to me, I mean, that was such an incredibly beautiful moment in terms of humanity, in terms of science, what we can achieve, how we are explorers, um, you know, exploring the universe every day and the teamwork, intelligence, um, luck, all of those things come together to basically make missions like that happen. And I think that's such a, an incredible thing that I, I feel privileged to be able to share with people. You've got almost 120,000 followers on Twitter. What did they make of it? I mean, Dan's absolutely right. Often we kind of think of scientists as quite kind of buttoned up and, you know, in control of everything. And it does make a difference, isn't it, when you see that that human side of a person? Absolutely. I think that's incredibly important um, to share with people. And I think people respond. Um, I don't think that I have the following... Uh, follower count, not following, um, that I do because I am necessarily the best scientist or the best science communicator even. But I think that people respond to seeing the human behind the science and saying you can be both. You are both. You know, I very openly talk about different parts of my life, mental health and otherwise, to share that scientists aren't sort of in white coats in a lab you know, doing math all day and not talking to anyone. That's not me. And that's not any of the scientists that I know. You know, we are human beings who are passionate about our work. And I think one of the most effective tools of science communication that I found is when you are passionate about something and you share that with people, no matter what it is, people are going to pick up on that excitement and that passion and they are going to be engaged. And so, There's obviously a line between passion and sensationalism, but I think it's really important to share why something is so exciting to you, because that is the the hook, I think, that gets people engaged with whatever it is. We have an interview about um, concrete in this very series. 
Who knew that was exciting? Yeah. Well, I spoke to a really fantastic scientist about, you know, I the importance of concrete. Not. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and I sat, I told my husband about it. I was chatting on the phone to my mum later. And I was like, mum, I've got to tell you about concrete. Honestly, it's going to blow your mind. And you're That's right, it is the passion. Yeah. I mean, also yeah. partly concrete, but mostly passion <laughs> and emotion. I'll need to listen to this episode. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But I think I think you know passion and, and other things. It, it it shows that sort of human side of scientists, doesn't it? And I and I think that that's really important. And and failure as a scientist, I'm I'm a huge believer that we need to fail because we innovate. And if we're not innovating, you know, when we're not pushing the boundaries in the way that we could as scientists, failure is a is a thing you've spoken about, isn't it? You I mean you you shared. I I, I think this is this is quite a gutsy thing to do. You shared a. <laughs> Um, an examination paper where you got zero. Was it actually zero in a it quantum was, physics exam? It was a big, fat, large zero. Wow. Yes. Like How not even a one for your name or anything? <laughs> not, like, I know. That's the thing. Wow. How did you like, do? There it, there, it wasn't a multiple choice test where you like just bubbled wrong. Like it, it was a partial credit, full write out the answer. And I still somehow got a zero. It was shocking. I mean, <laughs> wow. <yeah>. devastating. <laughs> uh, did, did it come as a shock to you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like it wasn't that you'd done an all-nighter and, you know, like you kind of came in Here's you know, the thing. wearing your, your party dress going, well, you know, it's either going to go fine or not no. great. The thing about, at least for me, the thing about physics, especially in college, is, you know, I could go into an exam, no matter how much I studied, no matter how much work I did, I would leave the exam being like, I, I failed every time, every single time. And this time I, I did. I, I, I massively, <laughs> my, my intuition was oh, right on, on, on track. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, uh, it was a, let's see, it was quantum mechanics three. Um, and I, absolutely lost it after I got my grade. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to change my entire life and drop physics and I have no place here. And, you know, every physics class I went through, especially as an undergrad, I felt like I got lucky. I was like, okay, I did it. And now I have to make it through the next one and then the next one. And at some point it all sort of came to a head where I, I failed. And I went to my to my teacher and I said, what do I do? I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. I studied and I, I clearly have absolutely nothing to show for it. Um, and he honestly, again, shockingly responded like, you'll be fine. Just study for the final. The class is curved. You'll probably, you know, if you do well in the final, you can get like a B or a B plus in the class. And wow, that's I, pretty, that's pretty even, even <laughs> yeah. handed. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> solid average yeah it was um <laughs> that's a, that's a really wonderful part of physics is that every class is curved pretty much so you just have to kind of ride the wave and and you'll be fine <laughs> but um but yeah i i i openly shared that story on twitter and it <laughs> kind of shockingly went viral um yeah you I got had... retweeted by the ceo of google <laughs> sort yeah. of saying this, yeah. this person is an inspiration to me. I mean, that's that's kind of a that's a good outcome. Yeah, yes. yeah, it, it it was it was um, surprising. I think I even had a a student. I taught a class this semester, and a student emailed me a week ago saying, "I just saw your tweet about getting a zero. Like, thank you for inspiring me." And I think that is 
part of the reason I shared it and, and, you know, to say we can overcome challenges and we can push through adversity and, and, but the, but the real heart of it was saying we all struggle, especially I won't speak to, you know, your fields or other fields, but I think we all know the feeling of not understanding something and having to try and try very, very hard. And sometimes you just don't get it and that's okay. Mm. But I think so often people view, I viewed scientists as geniuses and as people who just inherently understood physics or biology or whatever it is. And that meant that I never felt like I belonged in science as a field. And so sharing that story of failure, I think the reason it went viral is because so many people joined in sharing their stories of failure. Mm. And there were people saying, you know, I just landed a rover on Mars and I failed my, you know, intro to engineering class or whatever it was. And so, you know, that common story of failure shows that we're all just trying to make it work. We're all just going through every single day and, you know, taking our successes, taking our failures, growing from both and putting the next foot forward to try to, you know, pursue our dreams. Mm. And I think I think that idea that STEM is hard, but that's okay. You don't need to kind of do no work and ace the the exam, be the top of the class to be the only person who's entitled to be a scientist or pursue that as a subject. And you see it so frequently. If you go and talk to to kids or, or listen to parents talking about their own children sometimes, a kid, you know, struggling with maths or with, with science, and they kind of go, oh, well, you know, it's maybe just not cut out for it. And you kind of want to go, no. Yes. You, you're <laughs> exactly. entirely cut out for it. Just mm. keep grasping. Exactly. It's okay to find it tough. And, and like you say, to, to get... Zero sometimes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I won't encourage people to get zeros, but, you know, if it happens, it's not the end of the world. Um, yeah, not the end of the world. Yeah. But I completely agree with you that it's it's not only potentially people struggling, but it's also this almost expectation that I think parents have for certain groups or teachers have for certain groups, primarily women, primarily women of color who experience this stereotype threat over and over as young children where it's almost like for every you know failure that they have or perhaps be you know not even a failure um the teacher or the parent says mm, that's expected you know you're not supposed to be able to get something like this this isn't necessarily for you and mm. that message is reiterated over and over and over yeah. Um, from very, very young um, ages. And so it takes a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of work um, to sort of thrust that off and say, you know what, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to go ahead and keep trying and keep doing what I want because this is something I'm interested in. But it shouldn't have to be that hard. You know, it shouldn't it, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, you should be struggling with the subject, not with society. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I'm um, I'm also in academia as well, Serafina, and I find that as a as a woman, I get asked to go on, you know, be the the token woman on the panel, you know, whether that's an interview panel or something, or if we need to talk about, hey, we need more women in science, let's get some women on to talk about women in science. You know, do you do you find that 
you get asked to talk about women in science or being someone from Egypt in science. Absolutely. Um, And I think sometimes I get irritated because I don't feel like I feel tokenized. Um, You know, I've been in groups um, or conferences or workshops where I'm one of two women in the entire room of 100 people and the only women of color. Um, And it's it's frustrating because, you know, you see institutions and departments um, and I'm not speaking specifically about Berkeley right now. I'm speaking more generally um, who like to put forward faces and say, oh, look, you know, so and so is part of our field or part of our department. And we are proud of them and we want to showcase them to encourage other other people um, in sort of marginalized with sort of marginalized identities to join. But on the other hand, you have to support those voices and those people on the back end to be able to do things like that. And I think it's not enough to just elevate voices. You need to be able to compensate them in more ways than one. So that means supporting them on the back end, giving them time to do that and not having repercussions for perhaps not like doing your research that day or, you know, paying them for these opportunities. Um, I love being the person who communicates to others because I find joy in that. Um, And I think that representation is important. You know, I would have liked to see a woman of color on, you know, a graduate's admissions panel, for example, when I was applying to graduate school, that would have made me feel, oh, I can see myself there. But on the other hand, you know, there needs to be more uh, elevation um, than just that. Mm. There's this there's this idea, isn't there, of cultural taxation. So this was a term that was coined way back in the 90s, um, basically describing that kind of burden that's placed on faculty from uh, ethnic minority or perhaps women, anyone who's an underrepresented or, as you say, marginalised identity or background. And they have a greater responsibility to represent, to mentor, to role model, to be on the diversity panels, to kind of do the open days. And that's in addition, that service is in addition to all their core work. And so they pay for it. They pay for it in ways that aren't always measured in in research institutions. Yeah, I think that term is perfect. Uh, That's exactly what goes on day in and day out of any like I said, department, fields, uh, workshop, conference. Um, and it it is exhausting because you are constantly held to a standard that is not commensurate with the work that you're doing. You know, mm. you're doing so much more, so much more broad work, um, and yet it's not being reflected in, say, uh, faculty admissions or faculty... Uh, applications um or the rubrics that we use to to judge grant proposals for example Uh, i know we've all seen the uh publication metrics over the last year with covid and how women and people of color have published far less than white men and you know a large part of that is because women take care of children and there are a lot of people of color who have to support other members of their community than themselves and so you know that work isn't reflected in sort of this metric that we use to judge a researcher's uh 
ability or or worth, which is you know your your the, your number of publications per year. And so, I'm very lucky, I think, in that my advisor sees that and says, um, "I'm not going to use your publication metrics to judge whether you're a good enough grad student." But unfortunately, that's not the norm. I think that a lot of people are are forced to choose between you know, sort of these other efforts and outreach efforts and advocacy efforts and their academic work. Um, and yet people with marginalized identities are somehow expected to do both. Yeah. I mean, this is a question, I guess, for 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 you, Serafina, and for you, Dan, on you know either side of the Atlantic. What do we actually do about that? I mean, we've identified that there's this massive issue, sort of systemic problem. What, what's the first step in terms of fixing it? Yeah, I I don't have, you know, uh, uh, an easy answer, but I think part of the part of the answer is you need to support people in every single vector of work that they do, whether it's publications, outreach, advocacy, all of those should be, I think, part of what makes a, a scientist a scientist. And those are the metrics that people should be not evaluated on, but sort of uh, understood as as the whole package of what makes a scientist a scientist. All of that is important. You know, it's not enough to say science is the data or science is the method science is inherently racist it's inherently political and you need to start to bring in these other intersections of of uh, work in order to really start to tackle these problems and support people on their endeavors in each aspect of that work mm. Mm. it's a double-edged sword i think sometimes though isn't it because um, you know, we want to make sure that that science is accessible and inclusive. From my point of view as a scientist, what would I have more of a problem with? You know, if we're talking about making science more accessible and inclusive, would it really annoy me if it was then full of a panel full of white men talking about that? Or would it annoy <laughs> me more because, you know, you've got you've got more people who are more diverse it's all right, so it's Dan. Hard. We've got this panel. You crack on with your research. Yeah. In the in the states, we call yeah. that a mantle. I don't know if you all have that term. <laughs> yeah, we we aren't allowed to to have all the same gender panels now. Um, really, you know, that's an explicit yeah. rule. Wow, that's yeah, great. So we we try and just make sure that it's just not a thing. Both ways as well. You know, it's not right. not all female, not all male, because you do need that inclusivity side of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I completely agree. I mean, it, you need, you know, every every intersection of, of outreach, whether it's a panel, conference, whatever, to be inclusive and to be diverse. And that means you have to support people who do those efforts. You can't just expect the one woman of color or the one black woman in the room to stand yeah. up every time and have to do that work and then mm. get you know, uh, penalized for, I don't know, not having the same publication record that somebody else might have. For example, there has to be more like holistic, comprehensive, uh, and I think empathetic rubrics of um, sort of understanding what 
a scientist does every day because everybody has different burdens to carry. And I think those with marginalized identities carry the most oftentimes. Science communication um, and, you know, and you're writing books and amazing work. It it doesn't feel like a sideline to, for you. You know, it doesn't feel like you're you're doing your your PhD in astrophysics and then this is another thing that you're doing. It, it feels like like this is very much part of you and part of your career. Has is science communication that ingrained in you that it is definitely part of your Absolutely. career? Absolutely. And I love the way you phrase that. I I sometimes say I have two or more jobs, but really it's all one thing. It's just different versions of that thing in different spaces. For me, that's I guess the core of it is is science and astronomy, but not even, you know, I go into women's health and advocacy and there's I think the the common denominator is is wanting to share every aspect of science with the world. And whether that is through running simulations on the supercomputer or observing at a telescope or speaking on a panel um, or hosting a show, there are all different ways of of doing that one thing. Serafina, what was what was the thought process when you were dealing with the news that you were a carrier of the BRCA2 gene. So this massively increases your risk of of developing breast and other types of cancer over your lifetime. Was there a decision that you you kind of felt you made about, okay, I'm going to do this publicly and become an advocate on this subject? Or or did it feel inevitable? What kind of how how did that work? I I think um there was a moment where a decision was made, but it was almost out of necessity. So, you know, I was diagnosed with the BRCA2 genetic mutation when I was 23, and I sort of put it to the side for a couple of years. I said, I'm young. My you know, my dad has cancer. I need to focus on that. And I'm not in a place where I can think about this. I started my PhD program when I was 25, and that's the year where you're supposed to start doing the monitoring and having your MRIs and meeting with doctors. Um, and I think I, I went through the process of getting an MRI, having a biopsy, and then having it be benign. But that entire process was so debilitating and overwhelming and scary and isolating that I... Um, really felt like I needed to change the narrative, at least in my head, of saying instead of being reactive to this diagnosis and waiting for something inevitably to happen, I'm going to be proactive and get a mastectomy to reduce my my chances of breast cancer. And so after I made that decision, I started looking for surgeons and started talking to my oncologist and, and other doctors and I felt so incredibly isolated and frustrated by the process because I was constantly told I was too young, I don't have cancer, so they're not going to take me seriously, um, that I, I'm i basically being traumatic. And, you know, when you're by, faced by with the, the medics, by, by the doctors, yeah, who, of course, wow. are I, the, at least the the 
plastic surgery field and general surgery of breast uh, breast surgeon field, um, at least in the States, is is overwhelmingly male. And so it's very frustrating to go to, um, you know, these surgeons and say, I have an 80 percent, 87 percent chance of getting breast cancer. Can you help me? And basically be told no. And so I had to struggle with that alone as a 25 year old. And that was sort of when I started talking about it online and saying, um, sharing my journey. Um, I also, because I live in the States and am a grad student, did a GoFundMe to help fund my surgeries because I couldn't afford it. And so by doing sort of these communication and involving my own community, I found that people really, really responded with support, with validation, with sharing their own fears and their own experiences. And I connected with people in a way I've never connected with them before. And that was such a powerful, beautiful gift, really, from this whole process that I felt really empowered to continue sharing and start talking about breast health and things that I never would have talked about prior to this diagnosis, but I felt empowered to share my journey in hopes of empowering other people to the point where I had people from all over the world asking me about genetic testing, asking about going to the doctor because they felt a breast lump, asking me about having conversations with their family about their cancer history. So I felt like I was able to connect with and um, touch people in in ways that I never would have dreamed of beforehand. Wow, That's- and it shapes you, hasn't it? You know, it, it's shaped you as a as a person, as a scientist. You know, is it is that is that story going to be in your your memoirs, Starstruck? Yes, yes. So okay. I will be talking a lot about. Um, sort of the struggles that I faced, you know, as a young woman falling in love with astronomy and science and then having to basically persevere over and over again um, to continue to do what I love. And one of the biggest obstacles I think I've ever faced was that diagnosis and um, having to come to terms with Things that young 20-year-olds don't really think about, cancer, Mm. um, death, life, the meaning of life, all of these, you know, really big concepts and ideas that I I never wanted to think about as a 25-year-old, but I was sort of forced to. Yeah, you should have just been freaking out about your PhD. I know. Not not having to (laughs) worry about things like this. Yeah, One person (laughs) is not built for all that stress. Um, And you're also, you've written a children's book as well? Yes, I have an upcoming children's book coming out August 3rd called Little Leonardo's Fascinating World of Astronomy. And I talk about all of my favorite astronomy things um, to ages. It's, It's aimed for ages four through seven, but I... I really do think that anybody of any age will get something from the book. Excellent. Nice. Give us give us a, something out of your top 10. A favorite astronomy facts? Yes. All right. Every single second, a star explodes somewhere in the universe. Every single second, a star is exploding. Oh, that's cool. Oh, nice. Nice. 
Go and give us another. I want another. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's the, uh, here's the other one. We only know somewhere between 4 and 5% of all matter in the universe. Everything else is dark matter and dark energy, of which we have no idea what it is. So we really are explorers in the like very core definition of the word because we are, you know, sort of the first explorers of our universe, at least to our knowledge. To oh, our knowledge. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Good caveat. <laughs> Alien music. <laughs> okay, so Sarafina, this is a, a series that is all about championing good psychom. If people are listening to this, they're inspired by the work that you're doing. They kind of want to to harness that energy and, and do something in their own fields. What would you say that your top tips are for someone getting involved, perhaps extending their reach or finding new audiences? I think the number one thing, and I, I mentioned this earlier, but I'll say it again, is communicate your passion with people. When you are excited about something, other people will be excited, even it's, if it's about concrete or, you know, uh, <laughs> the wall. There, There's a lot of people who want to engage when you are excited. The second thing I'll say is, I, and I, I know a lot of people say this, but I think it's important, avoid jargon, avoid... Um, sort of technical terms that maybe you don't even remember are technical. For example, when I say supernova, sometimes people have no idea what I'm talking about. And I need to remind myself to go to the very core definition of an exploding star. And mm. so um, oftentimes, even in the very beginning, people are turned off by science communication when they can't understand what you're talking about. And we're mm. so insulated in that world that we forget some of these words. Um and then the third thing I will say that I think is specific, um, not just to science communication, but science in general, um, is find community. So, you know, find people who will help support and elevate your voice, who, who can connect you with people that are also interested in the things that you're interested in. Um, and then focus on elevating the voices of people who often are not heard. Um, which includes people from marginalized identities um, and marginalized backgrounds. And in doing so, building that network, I think, really helps with exposure, of course, but also helps you learn things that you like and dislike about science communication and how to best share your message with people. You get exposed to uh, different types of audiences and different groups of people. Oh, top tips. There you go, folks. Sarafina, if, if people want to find out more about your work, follow you, where do they go? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at StarStrickenSF. And you can find my astronomy show, Constellations, on all Seeker platforms. Thank you so much, Seraphine. Oh, it's been so lovely to talk to you. I feel like we just carry on talking to you. but um, I know. Yeah, it's so, so <laughs> great. And, and I really do think you will be an inspiration to, to so many researchers of, of every stage of their career journey. So really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I love chatting with you both. Thanks for listening to This Study Shows. Please make sure you follow us in your podcast app. Leave us a lovely review. You can find out more information on the show at thisstudyshows.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
This study shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Mariano Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.